Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health, one of the greatest challenges facing the world. Well, 2022 was supposed to be about the global health community coming together, all hands on deck, to make sure wealthy countries committed the $18 billion for the next three years that the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria needs. But has Russia's war with Ukraine upended that? And coming on the heels of two years of a global pandemic that doesn't show any signs of waning, we need to recalibrate what the global security agenda looks like for the 2020s, and frankly, making sure that health and pandemics preparation and response, well, that that is at the heart of that agenda. My guest in this episode is Gail Smith, and I can't think of a better person to kickstart this critical conversation. Gail is one of my sheroes of the global health movement. She is CEO of ONE, a global movement campaigning to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030, so that everyone everywhere can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. Last year, Gail took eight months leave from ONE to serve as President Biden's coordinator for the global COVID response and health security at the Department of State. Prior to one, Gail was the administrator of USAID under President Obama, and she served as special assistant to Obama and senior director for development and democracy at the National Security Council, where she helped lead the US and global response to the Ebola crises in 2014 and 2015. She was a special assistant to President Clinton and a senior director for African affairs at the National Security Council. Gail, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. Well, you have a fascinating career and um, with a wide variety and array of roles. Um, and I wondered if you could share a little bit about your personal journey. Um, I am fascinated by the way you've been able to drive policy leadership at the 38,000 foot level, but also sort of get closer down into the weeds and join the dots to make sure that we actually diver, deliver on results. So how have you been able to do this? Well, I, I wish I could say, Ben, that there had been a grand plan since I was eight years old. It didn't quite happen like that. I uh, Actually, before uh, serving in any U.S. government position, I lived in Africa for 20 years. I started out as a reporter. And one of the big events in my life was the Ethiopian famine. Remember the big famine that, that triggered We Are the World and all of those things where I remember the original BBC reports and it was just, it was horrific. I was working then, uh, it was a war zone, behind the lines as a reporter and then I went to work for a number of NGOs. And I think the thing that was driven home to me then was that the world is unbelievably unfair. I mean, I could go from northern Ethiopia or Sudan, which were in absolute crisis, fly to London, and everybody was acting like everything was normal, or fly to Washington or New York. And so that set me on a path of thinking, okay, here I am, I'm going to do everything I can to try to make the world more fair. Uh, and that's meant uh, working in government three times now, which is something I had never anticipated, but I'm delighted to be able to have done. But also working as an advocate and an activist, because I think it takes both to get anything done. Yeah, and I really want to center in on that aspect of, of your career. You're CEO of the One Campaign. Um, 
my little one-liner, did I get it right? Anything you'd add about one? No, you know, I, I think the way to think about one is like a political campaign, but without politicians, right? So we don't run programs. We don't do work in the field. What we do is organize people to advocate, to get decision makers to do the right thing. And we do that with an inside game, engaging those decision makers directly, but also with an outside game in trying to mobilize the public behind some of the key issues of our day. And it's it's a great job. It's a great organization. Well, uh, it has really, uh, I, I think, driven the agenda in ways we could not have imagined back in the early 2000s. So real kudos to you. Um, we're going to spend much of this podcast conversation talking about um, COVID and Ukraine and the impact that it has on global health security or global health solidarity. Um, and, and I just wondered, at, again, the 38,000 foot level, what your sense is of how things have changed in the last few years? You know, Ben, one of the observations that I have found myself making, and it's been reinforced by the global food security crisis that's been triggered by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that when we think about national security or global health security, security in general, um, there's a fairly conventional view of what that is. It's state-to-state -state conflict. It's wars. It's terrorist networks. It's people with bombs. What we're looking at now, if you think about climate change, the global food security crisis, the COVID pandemic, is transnational threats that by definition require everybody to get on the same page. And I think that's a different set of muscles for the institutions we have and for decision makers, because it's very different. I mean, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has triggered, and thankfully so, concerted, coordinated, very focused effort by the United States, Canada, the EU, and others. The pandemic didn't trigger that same kind of response. And again, I think it's this, the modernity of transnational threats requires us learning to do some things differently. Um, I'm sort of loath to say this because it, it perhaps is way, way premature. That absolutely resonates with me. You almost feel as if we're beginning to come into the era where the nation state um, is redundant. Um, it, it's very firm in my mind and for in my mind. Um, I was a campaigner against the uh, United Kingdom leaving the European Union. And one of right. the great tragedies for me of the last decade was, you know, this sort of little Englandism and returning, you know, supposedly to our own sovereignty, when clearly the the challenges of our era need something very, very different. Um, and this sort of collaboration, a sort of a one health, one world collaboration. So that that really resonates with me. Yeah, and it's, you know, look, I've I've served three times in government. And I think we're always going to face threats coming from nation states like an invasion. But I, I think you're right. We're in a time where we need a more integrated, more collaborative response, because none of us are going to get through any of these crises if we try to do it solo. Right. And, and we certainly learned that with COVID. Um, yeah. On the use of the term security, I've been um, really intrigued by 
uh, comments that um, Washington DC-based leaders like Lois Pace and um, Elisha Dunn-Georgiou, who was actually on a, a podcast with us last week. And, and they argue that the use of the term security when we're talking about global health um, is not only inappropriate, it's actually, um, it's actually quite damaging. And what we need to do is have a, a much more holistic um, approach to thinking about our solidarity in a whole range of things. And, and I find that quite appealing, but um, I'm going to be really opportunistic here and also say <laughs> that I think linking health to the global security agenda does two things. It gets us the attention of people in power, people who can make decisions and allocate budgets, um, but it does also reinforce this sort of holistic approach, one health, um, food security, climate change, um, and economic and social disruption. And I just wondered how you've been thinking about those those yeah. two ways. Well, I actually think, and, and Lois is a good friend and, and colleague, we need both. Because if you think about it, there should be boundless solidarity in the face of a global pandemic. I mean, if we want a world that is fair and where everybody can live in dignity and have opportunities, solidarity is a big piece of that. But it is also a security threat. If you look at the fact that by the beginning of 2024, the world will have spent $14 trillion on this pandemic. In the United States, a million people have died. Mm. Entire economies have been upended across Africa and other regions. That's a threat to security and stability for all of us. That doesn't make for a more stable, peaceful world. That makes for a more disrupted and fragile world. So I actually think you need both. And one of the things I've found, somebody once said to me, talk to people where they are, not where you think they should be. And it's really hard because I usually have strong views about where people should be. But to your point, if you're going to make an argument to political leaders, political decision makers, uh, the security argument's a very powerful one. That's part of what they're mandated to do is provide for the security of their citizens. And certainly this pandemic, climate change, the food security crisis, they've all got security dimensions and we should act because it's the smart thing to do, therefore, but also to your solidarity point, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, let's dig deep into COVID, if we may, as a, a sort of a proof point for this. Um, President Biden hosted his uh, COVID summit last week, um, and you at the One Campaign um, made, I think, a, a, a really um, important comment that you welcomed uh, the progress, but the, the progress is not sufficient. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, Ben, and you know a lot about health, and, and you and your listeners have spent a lot of time thinking about working on being active around the issue of, say, HIV and AIDS. The thing with HIV, Ebola, now COVID, is these are quantifiable challenges, right? We can measure where the virus is. We know how many cases we have. We know how to test. And that means that there's an almost engine, like an engineering-like feat to defeat the virus. When I was working on Ebola, I always thought in my mind that our job is to move faster than the virus. And as long as it's moving faster than we are, we're losing. Mm. So to end this pandemic, we've got to move faster than the virus and we're not moving faster yet. So contributions are great. 
more shots in arms is progress and we absolutely welcome it. But until we're moving faster than the virus, we can claim modest progress, but we can't claim success. Right. And, and I really want to come on to the challenges. Um, trying to keep it optimistic. What do you think the successes yeah. so far have been? I mean, clearly on the biomedical front, rapid development of vaccines and therapeutics has been terrific. But what has stood out to you? I think, look, there's a there's a very big issue out there about the sort of structural inequity in the way the whole vaccine uh, response has evolved. I, I do think when I was in the Biden administration, uh, the U.S. moving towards a goal now of sharing over a billion vaccines, many of which were bought by the United States for other countries. I think that's that's significant. I also think there are a couple of other things. Um, one, the movement on support for a temporary TRIPS waiver, right? The lifting of some restrictions for the production of medical countermeasures. It isn't done yet. It won't be done for a long time. It's going to be incremental, I suspect. But the fact that that even became an issue as quickly as it did, you remember what happened during HIV and AIDS and how many years it took to even get the issue of generic drugs on the table. It took years. So not enough, but not insignificant. The last thing, and I just want to make an important plug here, in every health crisis I've seen, the most effective level of cooperation and collaboration is from the health experts and scientists. And we've seen that again in this one. Even where countries have not been doing what they should be doing, yeah. the experts in those countries have been absolutely out there working as fast as they can and cooperating across borders in the way we all should. Yeah. And, I, you know, Tony Fauci comes to mind, but from China, um, you know, the the head of infectious disease at the CDC there, Wu Zanyu, you know, they just got on with it. But this question of vaccine equity, yeah. I, I think is really shocking and startling. I think you're right. We thought the hard-won gains that we got through the, the AIDS uh, crisis back in the early 2000s and the expansion of access to treatment, and I'm not taking sides here. I was on both sides of the, the argument, both industry yeah. and then the UN at the time, negotiating with companies. Um, but we were able to develop a common approach, generic manufacture, um, uh, voluntary licensing. Some countries explored compulsory licensing. Brazil comes to mind, but found different ways mm -hmm. of, of solving that. And I think the thing that has been so horrific to me is that we don't seem to have learned the lessons. And, and, and of course, vaccines are not antiretrovirals. They're not medicines. It's not the same manufacturing process. And it strikes me that we have, you know, two priorities. One is the immediate of getting everybody vaccinated, meeting that 40% goal that the WHO has been calling for. And so there's an urgent need. But then there's also a need, and come back to this in a minute, to, ref to really help different regions around the world build up the capacity to get vaccines manufactured, both for the longer term of COVID, but also, of course, for disease X, whatever is coming around the corner. Right. And I just wonder, how, why did we screw this up, do you think, we collectively? And what do we need to do? Yeah. 
I think there are a few things. And look, I remember early in the Obama administration, we had H1N1. Yeah. And a vaccine was developed fairly quickly. It was an easier vaccine to develop. Uh, and those vaccines were bought up immediately by countries that had the capital on hand to buy them and were first in the queue. And we tried scotch tape and chewing gum to get countries to share. Now the virus died off. Uh, but I think what didn't happen then is we didn't say collectively, okay, what do we need to do if we have a major viral threat to make sure that medical countermeasures are available to everyone as quickly as possible? And so I think the world defaulted to some not surprising instincts of every country for itself. So everybody that could buy vaccines bought as many as possible. Those that didn't have the capital or aren't the primary customers of industry were last in the queue. Um, and I think history will, or the future will look back at this point in history and look at the disparity and see this as a moment in time that's going to define much of the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I completely, completely agree. Yeah. Now, a couple of the reasons it happened, to be frank, this pandemic was politicized from day one, including by the former president of the United States. Uh, that didn't happen during Ebola. There was some noise around the edges, but it wasn't politicized. Uh, AIDS was certainly politicized for a time, but when the U.S. made its big move with PEPFAR, for example, there's been a strong bipartisan consensus on fighting that epidemic since then. So the politicization really made it a problem. And I think because every country was facing a crisis, everybody just turned inwards. Even though we know the virus doesn't care whether you're in the U.S. or Canada or in Tanzania or in Burundi. So I think what we got to do and I'll, is still meet the vaccine demand now, but we got to think about what new rules do we need for the next time? What needs to kick in automatically? Yeah. And I, I want to get your thoughts in more detail on that. Yeah. But I also want to <clears throat> come back to the mechanism that we created to try and ensure yeah. vaccine equity, uh, the COVAX mechanism, which was um, sort of managed through the WHO and has, you know, the, the main um, uh, global nonprofits and product development and product delivery partnerships like, and excuse the um, alphabet salad here, Gavi and Sepi involved. Um, right. But it struck me that the... Uh, the problem here is that we were thinking we would be appealing successfully to countries' best instincts, that there would be a view that um, pooling our supplies of vaccines would be, and obviously it is, the best way to, to counter yeah. the pandemic. And yet we saw this extraordinary vaccine nationalism and it's not just true for the United States. It was true for Britain, for Europe, India, to some degree, given the, the huge crisis that it had mm -hmm. um, this time last year. And, you know, and I just wonder what your analysis of COVAX is. And I, I still believe in it. What do we do to make it work? What do we do to make it fit yeah. for purpose? I think, you know, it's interesting listening to you, Ben. It's, it's kind of the difference between national security and global security, right? Everybody defaulted 
to national security in the face of a global security threat. I think, look, I think COVAX was a great idea. Um, a COVAX 2.0, I think, would need a couple of things. One would be a serious commitment to full funding, which it's never had. Uh, the second is that, in hindsight, the world probably should have agreed that some percentage of global production would automatically be made available to COVAX so that some subset of the aggregate number of vaccines or whatever it may be was there for COVAX to buy. Because at times, COVAX had a hard time getting in the queue. The same happened with the Africa Vaccine Acquisition Trust, which was set up by the AU. It was hard to get in the queue. And we're going to need to reserve, I think, some of these treatments or vaccines in the future so that we avoid something where whoever has the most resources can buy them all up. Yeah. And that speaks to the addressing the short term, making sure there is supply for everyone who needs it and that it's used, um, but also right. that we build capacity. And I, and I was struck that, you know, Stavros Nikolai, who is the head of um, Aspen Pharma in South Africa, and I, I had worked with him very closely during the early mm -hmm. HIV access um, uh, conversations mm -hmm. and actions. You know, Aspen has not had a single order for... Um, for its uh, supply of, and I suppose it's the J&J &J vaccine um, yeah. from Africa. And, and so I think that, that tells me that there's, there's quite a complexity in addressing this. So how would you see us um, evolving the sort of the trade rules, but also sort of directing our, our uh, investments into that short-term solidarity, but also building the capacity? Well, you know, look, I think if the world had responded <clears throat> uh, with more fairness and more quickly, there would have been greater demand at the time. Had Aspen had the productive capacity it does now, and part of that was U.S. and other investments, there would have been demand. I think we're so late in the game that countries are saying, eh, I don't know. And also, to be fair, there's greater demand for the mRNA vaccines. I think on how we think about our investments. Um, if you look at Africa, it is overwhelmingly dependent on imports from medical supplies, everything from PPE through to vaccines to treatments. That's not a good thing for a pandemic. That's just not a good thing at all. It's too dependent. So I think increasing investment so more of those supplies can be produced and more of the more sophisticated supplies over time in multiple regions makes absolute sense. Now, I think what we've got to avoid is the notion that every country should produce all of its PPE, all of its vaccines, all of its treatments. That's not efficient. That's not, it's not going to happen. So there's still got to be some sort of cooperative arrangement. In the African case, what's really interesting is they're looking at a continental plan. Uh, how do they think strategically about production of medical supplies and countermeasures over time, looking at the entire continent. Yeah. I think that's a smart way to go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and so, you know, coming back, to, coming back to COVAX and it sort of feeding, um, b being a focal point, if you like, for all of the regional action, it sort of takes us to WHO. 
And um, so I just wonder how you feel they have performed in the last two years. I got to say, for me, Tedros led from the front and he would do press briefings and short clips on Twitter. And I'm you know, slightly embarrassed to say this and he'll, uh, he'll roll his eyes if he were to hear this. But it brought tears to my eyes when I heard him speak. And, you know, Mike Ryan um, and um, Maria van uh, uh, Kerhove, they were they all led from the front and I think provided us with a a vision of what we could do. So that was my take. What did you think? Look, I, I tend to agree with you. And I've I've known Tedros since he was a health minister and, and even before that and watched him work. And I think look, I think WHO, they're facing a pandemic. It is also a political football. Um, I think there's a bit of misunderstanding by some in the international community of how it works. I mean, it's got to respond to all members. So that's all countries. So it's not a, it's not an easy position to be in. I think if you look in particular, in com <coughs> excuse me, comparison to Ebola, I think WHO has done a tremendous job. Yeah. Uh, are there areas for improvement? Of course, but there are areas for improvement in the U.S. government, and any of the NGOs working on this, all of us have learned things that we need to incorporate. Uh, but I think amidst no sleep, uh, constant demand, a lot of political battles, a raging virus on top of all the other work that WHO has, um, I think their performance has been good. One other aspect of our global response uh, has been what strikes me as a sort of a a dearth of attention being uh, being paid to the need for stronger diagnostics, reference laboratories um, that can both, you know, discern, screen, and then be part of the public health infrastructure. And um, y y you know, m m my sense is that we, you know, we've had a lot of focus on point of care diagnostics over the last few years, and it's really exciting. Yeah. But it hasn't detracted from the need for really good. Um, reference laboratories, a network of those with trained technicians with high throughput, and and I wonder how do you feel we need to get that into the uh, the conversation? Well, actually, first I should ask you whether you agree with me that this is something that we should be prioritizing. No, I, no, absolutely, it should be because again, this is a quantifiable challenge, right? So that if we have data and analysis, we've got a roadmap, and the more information we have. And the more networked and connected that is, the better our roadmap is. So it's kind of a no-brainer. I, I do think, and one observation in this, is that the health community knows these issues really well. We've all been working together for a long time through a number of viruses. I think we sometimes presume that people who are not in this space that are forced to make decisions on these things automatically know what everybody in the health field does. And often they don't. So I think, first and foremost, we've got to do a bit more educating. Um, and second, the, the, you said something about whether it's a network or an integrated body of these things. Scientists around the world are working together very effectively, but the architecture isn't built for that integration. So I think, to your point, knitting that together, because you know it's one of the hard things to make political leaders understand. Viruses 
don't give a damn about politics. So whether or not you agree with a country doesn't matter. If that country's got a scientific team working on this, you want their data to be combined with yours so that you've got a roadmap. Which sort of leads me to the other point about the last two years with COVID. Yeah. Uh, the virus doesn't respect politics. It's extraordinary how controversial SARS-CoV-2 has been right across the world. Um, you know, you and I are both very interested in the way citizens come together and advocate for, in our instance, solidarity around global health. But a, a sort of foundation to that is having accurate information. And yeah. we have learned that, for better or for worse, you know, hesitancy, misinformation, issues that perhaps have been with us for centuries have really come to the fore during the technology age, as it were. And, and I wonder, you mentioned earlier about the bipartisan support for PEPFAR and the AIDS response. Why have we been able to continue to get it right for AIDS solidarity, kind of, but not really for COVID? Well, I mean, in actuality, I mean, there's an ongoing fight now about additional resources for the international response that's caught up in politics. We actually had bipartisan support for the U.S. global response. I mean, when I went into the State Department, we had a lot of money and it was because the two parties had agreed. But I think the danger here, and I think it's utterly terrifying, is that scientific facts have become a matter of opinion. And we all know that that gets amplified at warp speed on social media. But we've actually got people in public positions of power and influence that are endorsing the notion that scientific fact is opinion. And, you know, in, in all the years I've been working on these issues, we've seen some ugly debates around HIV and AIDS towards the tail end of the Ebola epidemic some pretty nasty stuff snuck into the mix. But never was there an issue debating how Ebola was transmitted or the value of testing for HIV or the, the value of prevention of transmission. Never was that a subject of debate. And now those things are huge political issues. Scientific facts that are about keeping you safe, me safe, all of us healthy are, are political footballs. And that's really dangerous. I think that's as dangerous as any virus. Could we change tack now and yes. go to the end of February this year when um, President Putin of Russia um, ordered his troops to invade Ukraine? And, and, and I feel that this was a everything has changed moment, somewhat like 9-11 yeah. 21 years ago. Um, and, and obviously in this podcast, we're sort of discerning, trying to discern the, the impact on, on health, on global health. And it may be premature to try and discern those, but does anything stand out to you right now uh, as being relevant? I think so. Well, and first and foremost, there's the impact on the public health of the people of Ukraine. And WHO has spoken out frequently about that. But whether it's actual attacks on clinics and health facilities, 
which we've seen increase over the last 15 years in wars all over the world, uh, or it's the disruption of regular treatment and programming, whether it's HIV, TB, anything else. We all know that if you break continuity, you've got a real problem. So I think there's an immediate impact in the Ukraine. I think that <clears throat> the other impact is, look, and I, and I think, you know, I, I would not run for president. It's a really hard job. I wouldn't run for prime minister. Um, so I don't envy today's world leaders. They've got to deal with Ukraine, the pandemic, climate change, the tsunami ripple effects of Ukraine all at the same time. I do think there is a danger that with all the focus on Ukraine, we could lose sight of the fact that this pandemic is not over. And none of that is to say that we shouldn't respond to Ukraine. We should, absolutely. But this is a fragile, complicated world that's just being assaulted by crises, and we've got to manage all of them. So whether it's that, whether it's the replenishment of the global fund to keep the HIV AIDS fight going, we've got to be able to do all these things at once. And we can't get into a situation where we're robbing Peter to pay Paul. It, or, and there's a danger of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the you know, there is um, there is a pie uh, that, that tells us how yes. much a pot of money, if you like, um, no, and how pie. we divide it. higher. Yeah. But the issue is we got to make it bigger, not divide it more, uh, you know, um, you know, now, as you say, Rob Peter to uh, pay Paul. But you also. And, and that's a really big challenge, Ben, yeah. is that the demands on that same pie now, the pandemic, climate, this food security crisis that's been triggered by the invasion is massive. Ukraine itself, let's not forget ongoing humanitarian crises elsewhere, Asia, Africa, the Middle East. And we can't do all of those things effectively if we don't increase the top lines. Now, the world is pretty good at increasing the top lines on defense spending. Not as good at increasing the top lines on health, humanitarian, food security, other spending. And, you know, when I was USAID administrator in the NSC during Obama's tenure, the biggest supporter of what we were trying to do was the Defense Department, because they recognize as much as anybody that using defense to respond to these threats, as opposed to these other constructive building investing kinds of tools, is not the way to go. But that hasn't translated yet. And... Everybody's going to have to increase their top line or make some choices that are going to prove, I think, dangerous. Yeah. And, and I think us from the global health community, we, we need to be engaging in those conversations. Um, right. And, and you, you know, I, so I, for example, I've been really struck by um, a fellow um, English-American, Fiona Hill, the, um, yes. uh, the Ukraine advisor who uh, was under such scrutiny um, and has really come forth as a, um, a, a, a really informed, I think, um, uh, thinker about what we do. And she has really emphasized the importance of linking health to these broader conversations. Absolutely. And we need to be talking, uh, talking to them uh, and, and, and building that. Uh, there was something else you said I just wanted to come back to. The military strategy 
of targeting health infrastructure. Yeah. On the podcast we did last week with Frontline AIDS, we had their partner from the Ukraine, the Alliance for Public Health, talk about how they are trying to respond to what has essentially been a very deliberate campaign by Russia of destroying health infrastructure. And I was going to ask you if this was something new, but you had pointed out that this is something that has begun to be seen over the last 15 years. What's been happening there and why do you think? You know, it, it always seems an odd notion that there's something called the rules of war, right? There are rules of war. Those have been being violated for a long time. If you look at the increase in the number of deaths of humanitarian workers, of health workers, um, look to Syria, where Russia had and has a prominent role. And mm -hmm. health systems there were not accidentally hit. They were deliberately targeted. And one of the things I, I think that is being calculated is if you wipe those out, then communities can't stay there. They have to go somewhere else. They will give up because they're so desperate to have something as basic as health services back. Now, it doesn't work because I think you found with some of the frontline workers you've talked to, people are incredibly resilient and they're going to fight back, push back, build back in any way they can. But it's been on the rise and there's been an incremental response. You know, every six months, year or so, there's a session at the UN or somewhere that decries it and condemns it. But I don't think we are collectively looking at it to say that health facilities, healthcare has become a fair target more. There is a very clear... I don't mean it's a fair target. No. It is being... It is being used as a quote-unquote fair target by a lot of the perpetrators. Yeah, and, and there is a prime example of health being a global security issue. Absolutely. There's one other Absolutely. question, and I'm, I'm sort of loath in a way to ask this and raise this. Obviously, we're concerned that if Russia continues to lose um, militarily, that that might push them into a corner and might be an incentive um, to them perhaps to use uh, weapons of last resort, weapons of desperation, chemical or nuclear. Um, and the Russian military has always planned for limited use of nuclear weapons in the battlefield. Um, obviously, there, this would take it to a completely different level mm. of response. But I wonder whether you think... Um, despite the lack of conversation about what would happen, whether our health planners have been thinking this through, because clearly um, fallout, radiation, just as we saw from Chernobyl in, 19, in the late 1980s, that would move into Eastern and Central Europe. Um, heaven knows what would happen if it was a chemical or biological attack. Um, and you know, you've been involved in disaster responses for many, many years. Um, and I don't want to normalize the talk of the use of these weapons. Yeah. But what should those plans look like? And, and, you know, and I'll ask you, do you think we should even be talking about this? You know, I, I think, um, look, even in Syria, when I was in government during the Obama administration, there were times that our humanitarian workers and partners had to go into areas where it appeared that chemical weapons had been used and be fully prepared for that. There was the ability 
to do that and do that very quickly. And I think there are plans in place and capabilities in place across multiple governments. And it's horrifying to even be having this discussion. I mean, the notion of tactical use of a nuclear weapon is sort of that sentence doesn't doesn't really work. Um, I think that when we think about global health security and threats, they're of two forms. There are natural threats, the occurrence and spread of viruses, and there are deliberate threats, right? There, there's a terrorist with a vial. There is someone who is foolish and dangerous enough to think you can tactically use a chemical or biological or a <clears throat> biological or nuclear weapon. And we've got to be prepared for that. You know, we can't bifurcate global health security and say, we're only going to do it if the cause is natural. We've got to be prepared for the threats, however they may come. Um, and it's sometimes uncomfortable because it means combining the global public health people like you and I with the sort of biosecurity people and things can get a bit touchy there. But a lot of the capabilities that are needed are the same across both. And wherever it comes from, we got to be ready. Yeah, we've got to learn to speak their language and they need to, to learn to speak exactly. ours. Um, you know, the, and that's happening yeah. a bit. Um, you know, the, the rubber hits the road for me. Um, and and mm -hmm. I wonder if you're seeing this linkage. But I do feel that there is, um, from a, a broader Western global security agenda, I think there is a linkage between what happened in COVID and what is happening with Ukraine. You know, mm -hmm. we supposedly have created this um, international coalition opposed to Russia's invasion. But actually, you know, there are a lot of non-aligned countries that remain neutral. India, most of yes. Africa, if not all of Africa. Yeah. And, um, and we are going to need them. Uh, we're going to need that solidarity. And, and there was something um, that the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, said in, actually, he was, a, he was interviewed by DevEx. And I wonder if I could quote it to you and, and see what you think. Sure. He said that, and, and this relates to vaccine equity, Africa is never again going to want to be in a situation where it is having to rely on international cooperation in circumstances where it is very obvious that in a pandemic, every country is going to look at its own interests. And, you know, what I take from that is that, you know, it is absolutely in the West's strategic interests that we do build up this capacity and we do take the tough decisions about how we get vaccines and medications, even if they require us to, to rethink some of the rules of the IP game. Am I wrong to make that connection? No, I don't think you're wrong to make that connection. And I think the former prime minister is right. Nobody in a country that is below the threshold of 14% coverage, which is Africa's average, can look at those numbers and conclude anything but what he suggests. Um, and, and that's why I say, I think this is going to shape a lot of things going forward. I think you're connecting the dots. You know, I don't know if it's an absolute connection, but I, but I think there is a connection in that, um, a lot of countries have abstained from these votes uh, on the Ukraine. And I think part of the reason is that they've got relations with Russia and with China and with the West, and they don't feel the need to mix it up. 
But I think also there was a tendency on the part of some to just assume that they would all vote with the West. And I don't think that's an assumption you can make anymore. And I think the way the vaccine issue played out, that's a factor in how people are going to think going forward. So we do, we do need to connect the dots and we do need to come back to where we started and think about you know, what really is global health security and global health solidarity. Because <clears throat> it matters not just for health, but it matters for everything. You'll know that I worked for the late um, ambassador, Richard Holbrook, in the early years of the 2000s, setting up the Global Business Coalition. And, mm -hmm. and he said to me, I guess a couple of years before he, he died, unfortunately, um, prematurely, but that, um, you know, there was an argument to say that PEPFAR had shown um, the engaging solidarity side of US policy. And it was interesting that, you know, apart from Somalia, part of what was then all the Sudan uh, and parts of Western Africa, that certainly Eastern um, and Central and Southern um, Africa had not seen uh, the rise of um, uh, religious extremism and terrorism. And he postulated that PEPFAR had somewhat contributed to, to helping to sort of contain that. Um, would you see that our investments in PEPFAR, you know, in the global AIDS response, PEPFAR and the Global Fund, that they have really um, helped us in, in at least creating a, a, an openness and a willingness post-empire uh, for these countries to, to work with us? Well, I think certainly, and I think most of these countries want to work with us in any case. I mean, if you talk to most of them about where they'd like to see more investment, it's from the West, for example. Um, so I think that desire is there. I think where it, it's really critical is that if you look at the definition of a fragile state, like a state that's vulnerable to extremism, one of the, the criterion is its ability to deliver basic services to its citizens. Otherwise, like, what's the relevance of a government if it's not delivering on basic health or any of these other services? And I think what PEPFAR has done <clears throat> along with other things, is really prime the pump in the machine of health service delivery. And suddenly governments and partners, in the case of PEPFAR, the United States, in the case of Global Fund, the international community, are delivering. And that gives this country cohesion. One final question about the impact uh, of Ukraine on the global health yeah. uh, community, Gail. Um, you mentioned the seventh replenishment of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria. Um, and President Biden is hosting that replenishment conference in September in the US. Um, the US has been fantastic. Um, again, that bipartisan commitment has meant that it looks like uh, the US will be able to make a very, very significant contribution mm -hmm. to the next three years of, of of the Global Fund's replenishment. But, you know, other countries, and the UK and Sweden particularly, are going in the other direction. They've not made commitments to the Global Fund one way or the other, but they have reduced or diverted their overseas development aid. The Global Fund needs to be fully funded. We all know that. Yeah. 
But how do we, well, do we have to adapt our advocacy in these new times to, you know, to clamor more that we need attention as much as the yeah. rapid military and humanitarian support to Ukraine? A hundred percent. And look, the president's request for the Global Fund is right where it needs to be. Historically, Congress has always supported, if not increased it. So I think the U.S. is okay. I'm particularly concerned about the U.K., uh, which has been such a leader in development for so many years and is receding. And I can't understand why it's perceived that that's in the interests of the U.K. or its people, but that's where you have it. So I think we're going to have to push harder there. I think we're going to have to be very clear in conveying the consequences of failure, not just in terms of HIV and AIDS, although that's primary, but the other things we've been talking about. We're going to have to look to other donors. Uh, we may have to be a bit more fierce, still fair, but fierce, because with all the progress we've made, to take a step back on HIV and AIDS and let that virus move more quickly again, it's it's unacceptable and unforgivable. So yeah, we're gonna have to change our tune. We're gonna have to up our game. That's certainly what we're doing. Uh, and I really hope if anybody from the UK is listening or Sweden, please let your governments know that this is vital to everybody and it's something of which every country can be proud. So it's wise and smart to do it. So pivoting uh, a, a bit now, Gail, uh, we're coming up to the top of the hour, but uh, there are still a few things that I, I'd love to get your thoughts on. Sure. And the first is around, more optimistically, uh, pop culture in driving movements of change. You're um, CEO of One. I'm the uh, co-chair of the MTV Staying Alive Foundation. We Great. both know how popular culture and music in particularly can can help drive change. Um, why are these kind of partnerships so important, do you think? You know, look, I go back to this, talk to people where they are, not where you think they should be. And people listen to different kinds of voices. Not everybody, even though they should, listens to you or me, for example. So if Someone they know, someone they look up to in that indirect way that people might follow an artist, an actor or a musician, makes a difference. And they've got reach. I mean, we did something early in the pandemic called Pass the Mic, where we got artists from all over the world to literally turn over their social media platforms to experts on the pandemic, frontline workers, Tony Fauci. And it was a valuable way to get to literally millions of people because they were going to follow Julia Roberts. And when Julia Roberts said, I'm turning over my social media to Tony Fauci, people got a day of Tony Fauci early in the pandemic. So they're kind of what you might call force multipliers. I completely, yeah, I completely agree. Um, last year, um, I interviewed um, now, she doesn't have the, the reach of Julia Roberts and would never claim to, but the, um, the high-energy uh, diva Hazel Dean, who is a, a, a yeah. British singing legend. And I was yeah. so fascinated that she had basically created a um, social media presence, Twitter, Facebook particularly, 
uh, to stand up and fight for trans rights. And I thought that was just so fascinating. And it, it really has, yeah. I think, had an impact. I, I think that's absolutely, look, one was co-founded by Bono. And, you know, there's a man who, he could go through life just being a musician and a rock and roll icon and do just fine. But he chose early on in his career to use his platform to get the world's attention. And he's done it very effectively. And part of what we're trying to do, any of us, in this effort to make global public health a real thing for everybody is get the world's attention and capture their imagination. Who better than artists and talent to do some of that? That's what they do. So I got to ask, do you have any Bono yeah. stories? I've got two that I wanted to share with you. One was with Holbrook. We, we met Bono in, I think, 2002, a freezing JFK airport and collaborated on sending um, uh, medicines and equipment to, uh, to Uganda. Um, and in the car back, Holbrook said to me that if Bono had been American, he would be one of the most compelling um, and effective presidents of the USA. And I, I thought that was funny. Um, but I also actually had a chance to meet Bono a few years later at an event in Washington, D.C. with the actress uh, Julie um, Ashley Judd. And, and this mm -hmm. was a fundraiser. And, and I had tried to sport it up a bit and not be the sort of usual, um, you know, uh, stiff upper lip Englishman. And so I was wearing a pair of uncomfortably tight um, imitation <laughs> leather PVC jeans. And um, from the floor, Bono noticed them, um, came over and said to, you know, and said to me, they look, they look really good but I bet you can't dance with, you know, can't dance with them. So, you know, um, if, if, if you can strike a pose in these jeans, um, I'll let you off making a pledge. If you can't, um, you know, get your organization to commit 10,000. <laughs> well, of course I could, not only could I not dance, I actually couldn't walk and it took most of the night to get the, pull the things off. But, you know, what a smart guy. Um, so, yeah, so I wonder, do you have any stories with Bono? Well, look, I've known him for a long time, and I've got both respect and a deep affection for him. I, When I was nominated by President Obama to be USAID administrator, you know, you have to be confirmed by the Senate and everything else. Uh, he had one issued a statement where he called me Gale Force One and said he was a fan because she gets shit done. And I was informed by the White House that they had never had a response to a nomination where somebody said something like, get shit done. So he's got this frank irreverence that I think is very infectious. I, I think the story I would tell, and it's something that people may not know, he's very good at using his voice and his platform. And if you've ever seen a U2 show, he doesn't dominate the show with one or red, but he always brings it up and he's got thousands of people captivated. But he's, as you say, he's very smart on what we call the inside game. He was here in Washington very recently. We did the rounds, met both parties, everybody on the Hill and the administration. And he's really good on stage. And then you can watch him with the secretary of the treasury or the secretary of state or whoever it may be. And he knows his stuff. He knew his stuff on debt. He knows his stuff on AIDS. So he's got like a slightly crazy 
rock and roll policy wonk bit that's really effective. And I'm really grateful for it. And he never wears a tie, ever, ever, ever. Even in the Oval, never wears a tie. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. Good for him. So, look, we are coming up to the top of the hour. Is there anything that I've missed, anything that you would you would want to raise that's important for our viewers and listeners? I mean, I think the important thing is for us to figure out collectively how we keep these issues alive, right? During a crisis, people want to know about pandemics. They want to know about global health. Global health experts have been in arenas they haven't been in a long time. How do we continue to capture the world's imagination? and keep this issue before decision makers, because not only are we not out of the woods yet on the pandemic, we're nowhere near we need to be in building the architecture and foundation we need so that people like you and me can take some time off. So just keep going at it. And to anybody who's listening, who's in this field and in this space, thank you. Um, I have met some of the most extraordinary people ever in my life who are health workers, scientists, researchers, inventors, and you're making a difference. I, I completely agree. It's a real privilege to work with people with yeah. such passion and commitment. And I, I would actually put, put you into that category as well, Gail. Well, in my research for this episode, I uh -oh. discovered, yeah. yeah, watch out. I discovered that you like dancing to music I on your own. Um, yes. And you do that as a way, one of... Um, exercising but also of you know helping to relieve stress so question is who are you dancing to at the moment oh i i gotta think about my playlist i i try always to have something that's got a good beat um i've been spending a lot of time with some nigerian music given that we got some big stars there so i'd say nigerian artists have been the 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 key key artists of the last couple of weeks. I just don't know what my neighbors across the street think because I always forget to shut the curtains. So they probably see this crazy woman over there <clears throat> dancing around the living room, but hey. Well, uh, uh, my family, my husband and dogs have, have, have had to be putting up with me um, uh, listening to Japanese um, electronic funk. Um, so that's what oh my I've goodness. done, I know, over the course of the... Uh, of the course but do of the you pandemic. dance to Japanese electronic funk? Well, I've got two left feet, so it's not something you know that anyone should should have to have to see, or indeed hear me sing um, uh, sing along, which is 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 also not a pleasant experience. Well, look, oh my Gail, goodness! Yes, I hope I have not been uh, too starstruck, um, but I really deeply appreciate your insights. Um, on what I think are some of the most critical issues of the moment for us. It's been a real privilege having you on the show. Gail Smith, you are a shot in the arm. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. This has been great. And, and don't be starstruck, it's just me. But when you're done, go turn on some Burna Boy. Try moving your left foot and your right foot and dance it out. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Gail Smith, and you can find out more about the One campaign at www.one.org. Thanks, as always, to our director and producer, Erica Spera of News.media. 
A Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Icana Health Action Lab and a member of the Health Podcast Network. And finally, a huge thanks to you. We welcome your comments on this episode and suggestions for topics for future episodes. And don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars. Have a great week and a safe week.